Today's episode is brought to you by Sephora. They've got clean makeup, meaning the beauty you want, minus the ingredients you do not. We'll explain in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. Corporations are creating culture. There's no more important place for people to start bringing their entire individual self to the table and actually have space and have the safety and have the freedom to use their untamed voice at tables because that is how culture changes. So yes, untame the companies. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hi, everyone. It's Danielle. Carly will be back next week. My guest today is Glennon Doyle. She is a speaker, activist, and a New York Times bestselling author. She is also the founder of Together Rising, a nonprofit organization that has raised over $25 million for people in crisis. Glennon first became a household name because of her Christian parenting blog, Momastery, but she has since become one of the most influential female speakers in the country because of her revealing memoirs and the power of her philanthropic community. Glennon's newest book, Untamed, has just been released. We are so excited for this conversation. Glennon, welcome to the couch. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. So I'm going to start it off easy. Skim your resume for us. Well, I'm a memoirist. I have written three books. Carry On Warrior was my first. Love Warrior was my second. Untamed is my latest. Congratulations. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. By the time you are listening to this, it will be out so you can go get it. Fantastic. Yes. Almost more importantly to me, I am the founder, along with my sister, and president of Together Rising which is an all-women-led nonprofit organization that matches warriors in their homes who are just refuse to go numb with apathy to the pain in the world with warriors on the ground who are doing world-saving work. And it's the honor of my life. So we are going to get into all of that. Before we do, you share a lot in your books. My favorite question to ask people, especially people who tend to be open, is what's something that you haven't written about or we can't Google about you that people should know? God, (laughs) that's just a hard question for me because my life is like, it's like I'm doing an expose of myself, right? So... Okay, this is the first thing that came to my mind, and I don't know if it's because I didn't sleep well last night, but my voice in my head has a British accent. No, stop it. Yeah. So Wait, wait, yeah. Is this the first time you've admitted this? Out loud. Like that's why my wife is in the room and she's like, what is happening? Okay. Let me tell you how I figured this out. I obsess over my speaking engagements. Like if you knew, I am ridiculous. I write down every single word I'm gonna say. I record myself on a phone and then I listen to the speech over and over again and I sound like I'm just going off the cuff. And I couldn't figure out why on stage do I not sound as smart as I do in my shower, like when I'm listening to myself, right? Like why? And and then one day I figured out, oh my God, it's because in my head, I have this amazing, gorgeous, <laughs> beautiful British accent that makes me sound 25% smarter in my own head 
than I do outside of my own head. What I'm saying is when I picture myself Mm -hmm. crushing it on stage, okay? Like when I'm in my shower and I'm obsessing about like this amazing moment I'm going to have like in an interview or on TV or on a stage, I am nailing the interview and I sound like Adele. I am so happy I asked this question. I'm kind of sad you asked that question because now I said those things I just said. (laughs) So, okay, I was not going to start here, but since you went there, one thing that for a lot of the people that I manage or have come across, a common thing is how do you get over a fear of public speaking? Mm -hmm. And I feel like we manage a lot of extroverts and introverts, and the common theme is it's hard across the board. Mm -hmm. I'm really surprised that you practice that way and listen to yourself because in doing prep for this and seeing you, you do not seem nervous at all. It never seems rehearsed. Mm -hmm. Have you always been comfortable being this personality? No. So when I first started public speaking, I used to, (laughs) I still have people that come up and ask me about this. Okay. I used to make my sister, my sister is my like life. She's in this room right now. I used to make my sister sit in a chair behind me on stage and not say anything. So it looked like we were on some kind of panel, but there was only one of us speaking and the other person wasn't saying anything. And it was so weird. And I, I now I can't believe that we used to actually do that. And it's because I have always done whatever I need to do to show up. And at the very beginning, as a person who struggled with anxiety just in her home, getting on stage was scary as hell, nerve wracking. And I figured what's the one thing I could do to allow myself to show up for this? I actually need my sister to sit on stage behind me. (laughs) I love that. But I think you're right. Whatever makes you comfortable and Mm -hmm. whatever gets you over that hump. Whatever gets you to show up, just do it. So I want to go back to the beginning of your story. What prompted you to start writing? My family communicates through writing. So my dad writes me letters for Christmas, for big events. And it's funny because my dad and I have a hard time communicating deeply in person. We don't really do it. But we can write things to each other that we could never say to each other's face. So I learned early on that you can say things in writing that you can't sometimes say in person. But when I first started writing publicly was after I had been sober for a few years And I was home with three children. I was just like dripping with children. And because of that, I was finding it harder and harder to get to my recovery meetings. And recovery meetings were the place that I felt safest and bravest in the world because in those circles, it felt like the only time that I actually heard anyone tell the truth about life. Like it's like we all have these two selves and these two voices and now I would call them our tamed selves and our untamed selves and our untamed selves are the voice inside that when someone says, how are you doing? Is like, oh, not so good. My life is really hard and my marriage is falling apart and I can't. And then the tamed self says, fine, thanks. How are you? Right? So recovery circles are the places that I discovered people who were using their untamed voices. And that was such a relief to me. And to not be able to get to those meetings was devastating because I am a person who desperately needs to hear other people tell the truth in order to stay brave. And so one day I was just sitting at my computer and I just started typing using that voice that I use in recovery meetings, my honest, true, untamed voice. And when I saw the words that I had written, it felt more to me like I was looking in a mirror 
than I even feel when I look in a mirror. And so that's how I started because my kids, I started writing because my kids wouldn't let me out of the house and I needed (laughs) to tell the truth somewhere. So I started writing all my thoughts, my feelings, and then I started emailing them to my friends each morning. And were they like, oh, this is just Glennon? Yes. Okay. Which would have been fine, except I didn't have anything else to do. So then when they didn't write me back, I would ping them like a couple hours later and be like, so I just was wondering if you had any thoughts about my thoughts. But the thing is that they had to work and like have lives. And so they couldn't constantly talk to me about my thoughts, which is a running problem in my life. And so... One of my dear friends, Joanna, one day sent me a link that was like, this is how you start a blog. And (laughs) Kind of like a nice way to say this might be a better way to put this out there instead of harassing us. Yes. And she said in the email, sweetie, this is what people do who have as many thoughts and ideas as you. I got my writing out there because my friends did not want to hear from me anymore. Like that is how I I started the blog and started using that untamed voice and people just, I don't know, it just started to help, help free people. What do you think about it really resonated? God, I mean, one of the themes of the book is, you know, we have this self, this wild self that we're born with. We're all born wild. And then, you know, most of us have a few good years of freedom as children. And then eventually we just start surrendering to the taming of the zoos we're born into, like families and nations and economies and cultures. Um, And we start acting instead of being, right? And we split, we split into those two selves, the real wild self we are on the inside. And then the like socially acceptable tamed self that we have to send out into the world. And I think that one of the reasons why we feel lonely and afraid sometimes is because we don't hear enough from the untamed selves of other people, right? I think that's why we are so comforted by art, because art comes from the untamed self, right? I think that's why we're comforted by our best friends, because our best friends are the ones who show us their untamed selves. And so that's why I think it resonated. It was just people saying, oh, my God, me too, We forget when we look at people's shiny outer selves that that's not all that's going on. You have been open about struggling with addiction since Mm -hmm. you were very young. And as part of that journey, you were admitted to a mental hospital when you were a teenager. Mm -hmm. Is that where you started to think about, probably not consciously at the time, but this difference between your tame self and your untamed self? Yeah. I mean, people get so worried about talking about that time in my life. Like, oh, my God, that must have been awful. And, you know, I had a lot of things going for me. My family had I was raised by two teachers. They had enough money to get me into a very lovely facility. That's not always how it is. So I was lucky in lots of ways, but I loved it. Like, which is not, I freaking I mean, loved it. I felt comfortable asking because you've written about yeah. how it, it was helpful. And you've said that, which is not normally what people expect to hear. I mean, Entering this place where there were like rules about like you were showing up as your real self. Nobody in the mental hospital is pretending that they're nailing life. Okay. It's like the jig is up. Yeah. Okay. Like you can just stop with that. Right. So everybody is just showing up with their vulnerable, true, raw, untamed self. And it is, it was so freaking comforting to me. To me, the mental hospital was so much less scary than high school. Right. It just seemed so much less crazy than high school. I feel like a lot of people listening that that is going to click. Because high school is insane. 
Like, oh my, middle school, high school, all of this. The fact that we have to walk around and pretend all the time and not say the thing we mean and try to assimilate ourselves into this crazy world is, is just wow. I think that the mental hospital was the first place where I thought, oh, there are like these little pockets of the world where you can just be totally free with your messed up self. And also, I love people who struggle with mental illness. I mean, I am telling you that I'm an activist and an artist, so all my friends are mentally ill. They're all at different places. You know, some of us are like actively struggling. Some of us are recovering. Some of us are going back and forth. What I think about people who struggle with mental challenges is that often these are the people in most cultures who are set aside as um, a little bit eccentric, but crucial. Like these are the medicine men these are, and women. These are the shaman. These are the poets. These are the clergy. These are the people who are a little bit eccentric and different, but are crucial to the to the survival of the culture because they can see things other people can't see and they can hear things other people can't hear. And they're willing to feel things that other people won't feel. Talking about mental illness, I think one, being an entrepreneur, it's not talked about enough. I think it's a, it's a really isolating profession, whether you are someone that's running a big company or someone that's just starting off. There's a lot of loneliness and isolation, and I don't think it's talked about enough in the tech industry, the rates of depression and anxiety that go on. And it's something that Carly and I talk about a lot. We both struggle with anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think that I've also found a way to make it a positive. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is something that not enough people talked about. How have you, and it seems like you have, taken your addiction struggles and turned it into something that I think one has helped other people, but also seems to be a part of you that you view as a positive because you get to share it? Yeah, I do. I don't view it as a positive just because I get to share it to help other people. Like that's one of the reasons. But I actually view it as a real positive in my life. And I think it's because, you know, what I've learned through my recovery is that I've always been the same person since I was born, right? I've always been a person with deep, deep sensitivity. And, you know, what I would call deep sensitivity, that kind of sometimes leads to self-medication. My problem was not that I drank too much. My problem was that I was anxious and depressed and I was using the alcohol to fix that. And it was less helpful than one might hope. But here's what I've learned looking back at myself. So when I was around 10 years old, that's actually when we start to internalize our social programming, right? That's when we get tamed, when we have our wild self and then the outside world starts telling us who we should be. And when we can't match that, shame starts and the split starts. So what I was heard from culture and from family and from everywhere was that I was too much. And so I started numbing myself with food and booze. I don't anymore think that I was ever too much, right? I think that I was a deeply sensitive human being. And the really cool thing now is to look back at myself and see, oh, the sensitivity that led me to numbing and led me to addiction is the exact same sensitivity that I channel now that makes me a really, really freaking good writer. And the fire, well, I call it my fire. My therapist calls it my anxiety, so whatever. (laughs) But the fire inside me, the anxiety that led me to and leads me to be kind of a fearful person sometimes is the exact same fire that I channel to be a really effective activist. So I've never changed, right? The only time I changed really was when I tried to snuff myself out with all of the food and the booze. There was never anything wrong with me. I was actually born with exact 
constitution, the exact gifts, the exact challenges that I needed to get the exact done, the exact work done on this earth. We are traveling all the time for work. And all the one time. one thing that we are really obsessed with is thinking through what we put on our skin when we are flying, when we are traveling, when we are on the road in so many places. It's really important that we keep ourselves healthy. And we've started to think about what does that actually mean regarding the products that we use on a daily basis? It's also because our skin just looks really bad when we travel. So we love using products that are clean because we like to know now what's in them. And we don't want to actually have to sacrifice the quality. Which I think is a big misnomer when you think about clean beauty. And that's something that we've really started to investigate in. So lucky for all of us, this March, Sephora is raising the expectation on what clean can be. Yes, they have some amazing brands that are clean and thoughtfully made. And some of our favorites are Bite, Ilia, Kosas, RMS Beauty, Tower 28, and Tartsy. So the products are packed with good-for-you ingredients. They look good, and they make you look good. It's great that one of our favorite stores, Sephora, is focused on clean beauty. We really appreciate that. I think that we are part of a generation that's really thinking about what's going into the things we use every single day. And it's great that we can get all the products that we really love without the ingredients that no one needs. Exactly. So time for you to get the best in clean makeup at Sephora online and in store right now. Look for the green seal to know which products are clean at Sephora certified. I want to talk about this idea of living an untamed life. You've talked so much about in the recovery circles and even in the mental institution, how refreshing it is when you hear people speak from an honest place. Mm -hmm. And I think today, especially in this age of social media, that's really tough. What do you think happens when people start leading with their honest selves? And also, how do you give people advice to do that when they are working in more of a corporate environment Mm -hmm. where they're showing up in places every day where that is not like, I love hearing you speak. I also think about my friends that are working in law firms. If they showed up being like, I'm going to live my untamed life, I can picture the eye rolls. And I think we all struggle with how to exist within a society that has these expectations mm-hmm. and also want to live in a freer way? It's a big question, yeah, obviously. No, I but, hear it. Yeah. You know, maybe in a corporate setting, you wouldn't stand up and say, I'm going to live my untamed life. Like maybe that yeah. one. But what, what being untamed is, is simply it's every time there's a moment of conflict, right? So say you're sitting around a table in a corporate setting. And someone says something that, um, you know, has like a a hint of a whiff of racism or misogyny or homophobia in it. Right. We all know that. We all know that when that happens. And, you know, the split comes when your tamed self on the outside is like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. This will pass. This will pass. And your untamed self on the inside is like, I need to say something. I need to say something. Now, what I know about corporations is, is that corporations are just groups of people. Right. So the most important thing about a corporation is that it's twofold. One is how we work together and two is how we make space for every single individual to bring her full self. So actually, corporations are creating culture. There's no more important place for people to start bringing their entire individual self to the table. 
and actually have space and have the safety and have the freedom to use their untamed voice at tables because that is how culture changes. Status quo always stays the same if everyone at the table, especially the marginalized groups, continues to keep their untamed voice quiet. I think one of the major problems in our culture, corporations, world, is this idea of tribalism, which is that we have this one group of people and we all must think the same way and we all must believe the same things. And if we step out of line, we will be tribal shamed. And that, I think we're moving away from that kind of group being an acceptable way of creating community. I think what we have to do in corporations, in churches, in institutions, in political groups, in families, in relationships, is create room where people who have differing ideas, differing voices, differing experiences can bring their full selves to the table and know that they will be both held by the group and free to bring a different self to the table. So there is no more important place for people to begin to start using their untamed voices than in corporations, right? That should get the opposite of an eye roll. That should get the, oh, this is actually what we're doing here now. Like this is the tipping point in America, right? Do you see what happens when people are silenced at corporate tables? Those corporations, four seconds later, go down on Twitter. <laughs> I've envisioned corporate rooms where they're like having their untamed meeting of the day. Like you are allowed to bring your voice, that thing that you think you're not supposed to say, to this table today and it will be safe. That's how corporations stay what, what we would call relevant. P.S. It's also how corporate corporations stay safe because if your most marginalized people are not leading you by using their untamed voices, your ass is about to get screwed on Twitter in five days. Like you have to let those voices lead you. So. Yes, untame the companies. You had a serious period of transition in your life, both personally and professionally, when you were promoting your second memoir. <laughs> yeah, that was a doozy. Yeah, you knew we were going to get here. <laughs> a story about the redemption of your first marriage. And at the same time, you were falling in love with a woman mm -hmm. who is here. Can you walk us through that time. Okay. So Love Warrior is the book I wrote after the revelation of the infidelity in my marriage. And it was really being touted all over the world as this like epic marriage redemption story. Okay. Oprah had picked it for her book club. The train had left the station. This was the book that was going to heal all the marriages. Yay. And then in a meeting about, I don't know, six weeks before launch, I was on the phone with New York and there was like 17 people on this conference call, all the people. And we went through all the launch things, details. And at the very end, I said, okay, I just have one more thing. So what's going to happen real quick is I am going to actually get divorced. And I, because I am in love with an Olympian who is also a girl. Her name is Abby Wambach. I just feel like this will be fine. I don't think that, uh, I think this will just, it'll just, it won't be a big deal. Wait, so two questions there. One, who had you told up to that point. Right. So myself, which actually took me a while, and my sister and Abby and Craig and my kids okay. and Liz Gilbert. <laughs> that Liz, was it. Liz Gilbert's a good person to tell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She's my girl. Yes. 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 Um, and did you honestly believe that? That it was going to be like no big deal? No. Or did you just, okay. No, no, no. I knew yeah. it was going to be a big deal. Yeah. So that was a really interesting time because, you know, speaking of using our untamed voices, mm -hmm. everyone on earth told me that this was going to be a complete disaster, that 
you know, a person who is launching a marriage redemption book, who has a largely faith-based following, who has built most of her work upon this traditional family, is going to lose everybody, everything and everybody. And this is just going to come crashing down and nobody's going to buy this book, yada, yada. I live by what I learn from recovery groups, which is that we just always do the next right thing. And no matter what happens, we stay in our integrity, which means not doing the right thing or the good thing at all. It just means always aligning your inner self with your outer self. Integrity means like integrating. You're doing as much much as you can to match your inner words and ideas and feelings and beliefs with your outer words and steps and decisions. So that's my one thing, right? My one thing is like trying as much as I can to stay in integrity. So since that's my one thing, it didn't matter what everybody else was saying to me. How was it to actually live that? Now, hearing you and seeing your beautiful family and everything, I don't want to say, you know, worked out, but looks like you guys have fallen into this beautiful family together. Going back to that, how was it to actually make that decision? The decision to fall in love with Abby or the decision to go public and just I let the crap fall? Both. I mean... For me, the thing that was most hard about that decision had nothing to do with public opinion or the book or whatever. It was about my children. It was about my family. I, as you well know, it's like there's the world, which like will do whatever it will do. But then really your world is the people that you can touch around you. So those were the people that I was most worried about. And I think that the reason I was worried is because I was just tamed into believing that a mother is a martyr. Right. So I believed that a good mother does not break her child's heart. A good mother does not break up her family. So I might know in the depths of my bones that I'm in love with this woman and that I'm meant to be with her. And this is like myself saying, yes, please. But I can't do that because it would screw my people. And then one day I was braiding my daughter's hair and I just had this thought, which was, oh, my God, I am staying in this marriage for her. But what I want this marriage for her. And if I would not want this marriage for her, then why am I modeling bad love for her and calling that good mothering? Which made me realize how deeply I had been tamed, right? The cultural messages to women are always, no matter what venue you hear them from, get as small as you can until you disappear. The way they do that to mothers is to say, the ideal mother is a martyr. The ideal mother is someone who just buries her dreams, her ambition, her feelings, her desires, and calls that love. And it, it took me looking at my daughter and knowing that she's looking to me to see how does a woman live, to figure out, no, 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 no. The untaming of motherhood is saying, no, a mother is not a martyr. A mother is a model. Children will only do, will only allow themselves to live as fully as their parents did. So the call of motherhood, the call of parenting is to refuse to settle for any conversation, relationship, room, institution that is less beautiful than the one we would want for our babies. And what I figured out was, oh, this little girl does not need, need me to save her. What this little girl needs to do is watch her mother save herself. For me, it was one at a time figuring out that the, one of the lies that women have been sold is that we cannot trust ourselves. We cannot go for what we want because it will be bad for our people. That what we need and what our people need are mutually exclusive. 
right? That's why you always hear, oh, I would do that. I would go back to school, but I can't because my kids. I right. would do this, but I can't because my kids. And that's a lie. That's utter horseshit. Like, what is true and beautiful for us is always eventually what is true for our people, right? And there is no such thing as one-way liberation. When you free yourself, you automatically free everyone around you because freedom is contagious. So at the time, you had built up an audience that was predominantly Christian women. What did you think the reaction was going to be? And then what was it in actuality? I had always been, like for the decade before that, I had been an outspoken, completely like, flaming supporter of the LGBTQ community. Like I've been to more gay pride parades than Abby has. And she's like the gayest gay that ever gayed. <laughs> I was intentionally creating a culture that celebrated inclusivity and differences and sexualities of all kinds. If you were still a part of my community at that point, you understood that. This announcement was less of a departure from our values and more like a manifestation of our values, right? And that's one of the beautiful things about living in integrity is that if you're always saying the thing that you believe on the inside, you're always losing the right people. So everybody that was there, they were there because they had a, you know, they weren't all like-minded, but they were like-hearted, right? They were people that I would expect to say, yes, you have shown up. You have shown us your untamed selves. And whether we understand or not, you are both held and free here. And along with that journey, you began speaking more about social issues and social justice. I'd always been talking about social justice. First of all, it went wider. So people started to read it more. But also I started talking about race yes. more. Um, Specifically, when I'm referring to that, you've talked the about race Black stuff, Lives right. Matter. And, right. Yeah. That happened one day when I was sitting with my two little girls and it was after the Trayvon Martin shooting. And we were talking about Civil, the civil rights struggle. And I was sitting with a book with my little girl and I was showing her a picture of a march. And my youngest pointed to a white woman in the middle of the march. And she looked at me and she said, mommy, would we have been marching with them? And I opened my mouth to say, yeah, of course we would have. And my older daughter jumped in and she said, oh, no, Emma, we wouldn't have been marching with them then. I mean, we're not marching with them now. And I was like, shit, go to your room. Go <laughs> to your freaking room. Because I was sitting here enjoying this idea that I am like an activist just because I am quietly agreeing with civil rights in general, right? So that is when I had to allow the idea of being a good white person burn. You know, I started just reading everything I could get my hands on. I'll never forget laying in my bed and reading the letters from Birmingham jail and reading the words from Martin Luther King Jr. that said, I have come to the regrettable conclusion that it is not the Ku Klux Klanner or the councilman who is the greatest stumbling block to freedom. It is the white moderate who is more committed to order than to justice. And that's when I realized, oh, I, that's what I am. That's, that, that's when I had a, a, a words for what I was, which was a white moderate, right? So that's when I started learning. I mean, it took me a very, very long time, and I'm still just constantly just listening, just listening to as many, mostly women of color, that I could possibly hear. One of the things that white women ask me the most is like, so so how do I jump in? How do I enter the race conversation, right? Which is telling because I think it's less about sort of a performing thing and more of a transforming thing, right? It's more about like quietly listening and learning 
so that when you are called to say the thing or do the thing, what comes out of your mouth, it shows that you have spent the time and the work transforming. As Untamed is brought to, by this point, many of our readers probably have it and are going through it. What do you want them to take away from this memoir? I mean, first of all, I do want people to kind of get an idea of how much of our lives are planted by somebody else, right? Like when I fell in love with Abby, she actually walked into a room and I just felt these words rise up inside me. There she is. And I knew that these words were coming from a different place than I was used to hearing from. They were they were actually coming from my real, true, untamed self, right? The voice of the girl that I was before the world told me who to be. She was not British. Definitely, for sure it was. Okay. <laughs> right? just had to clarify. Yeah. My deepest inner voice is for sure British, yeah. okay? So I hope the people that read Untamed will read it in a British accent, okay? That's my first hope. Yeah. Somebody said to me recently that when they f- finished the last page of Untamed, they felt like they could fly. That's what I hope. I hope that when women finish the last word of Untamed, they feel like they can fly because I fucking believe they can. You've said that we abandon ourselves when we sacrifice our own happiness in pursuit of pleasing others. Mm-hmm. I think everyone probably agrees with that in theory. How do you start? to shift that Mm -hmm. narrative. The cool thing is it's like the most simple shift on earth. Let me tell you a quick story about how I I saw this crystallize in front of me. So I have a boy and two girls until they tell me different. And um, my boy was having a bunch of friends over recently. And I peeked my head into the room and I said, hey, is anybody hungry? And all of the boys in the room, none of them took their eyes off the TV. And they all just said, yes, the girls did something completely different. And it was so fascinating. Each one of the girls took her eyes off the TV and started looking where? At each other's faces. Okay. These girls were looking at each other's faces to find out if they in fact were hungry inside their own bodies. Okay. That is because boys are taught in every moment of uncertainty to look inside themselves, hear their inner voice and say that voice on the outside. Girls are taught in every moment of uncertainty, not to go inside, but to go outside, to look for approval, permission, and consensus. So we learn that when we're young, we continue to do that when we're older. So the cool thing is, is that I really believe that this is the, it's not easy, but it's the simplest shift on earth. In a moment of uncertainty, we resist the urge to look outside of ourselves. We get still, we go, inside and we practice feeling for the knowing. And I don't even have to describe what the knowing is because everybody knows what it is. You have a challenge, you have a question in your life, you go inside and there's something that is like, it's a nudge. It's some people call it God. Some people call it intuition. It doesn't freaking matter what you call the knowing, but everything depends on whether you call the knowing right? And the best thing about this is I do believe that we as women waste 80% of our time because we have this process in decision-making and the process goes something like this. Moment of uncertainty. Now we spend 4 million years asking everyone else what we should do. Then finally we do the thing. Then we spend the next 4 million years justifying and explaining why we did the thing, right? It's exhausting. What I figured out through recovery through the last decade is that 
I can just do the next precise thing that my knowing guides me to without asking for permission beforehand and without explaining myself after. Saves me 80% of my time and energy. I really believe that that is the most revolutionary thing a woman can do, is just the next right thing without explaining herself. Can I bring your sister in for one yeah, question and then Abby that. in for one question? I would love it. Okay, this great. This is so exciting. Oh, I Sissy love... Sissy Bear, get over here. I love having siblings on well, Of course together. you do. It's yeah, really yeah, yeah. fun. Okay, so we have Glennon's sister here. Amanda. Hi. Hi, Sissy. So talk about how you guys work together now. We work together. We do everything together. Yeah. So we have been... She's been helping me through life since she was born. Who's okay. older? I am, believe it okay. or not. I don't know how I lived for three years on this earth without her. It's actually terrifying for me to think about. So it's so funny because we just think that we work for each other. She thinks she works for me and I think that I work for her. Is that what you would say? I would. Yeah, <laughs> I okay. would. So I love my sister very much. I don't know if I could work with her. I am always fascinated by families that work together. Oh, it's a terrible idea. I, when, when, <laughs> yeah. when people tell me that they're in family businesses, I'm like, oh, I give that two years, three. <laughs> and then I have to be reminded that we're actually in a family business. Right. That like Glennon and Abby and I work together every day. But I, it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like we're doing life. If Glennon decided she was running a lemonade stand, mm -hmm. I'd be working with a lemonade stand. <laughs> So it happens to be that I feel like the way that that life has worked out so beautifully is that my talents and gifts happen to perfectly intersect with Glennon's needs. So a lemonade stand would have been a less ideal um, <laughs> setup. But you would have done but it. But I would have done it, man. Growing up, yes. Amanda, did you think that this is what Glennon would be? Or are you surprised? What I would say is that... Growing up, I mean, we were always incredibly close. I think during the period of time when Glennon was struggling with her addictions to alcohol, the only thing that I wanted was for her to come back and come back to herself. So for me, the biggest miracle of her life, the biggest miracle and the biggest gift of my life has been Glennon returning to herself and returning to us. Mm -hmm. So everything beyond that is just this ridiculous icing of joy. Mm -hmm. But like that returning is the thing that might never have happened. And the thing that was crucial, the first untaming of her was the vital foundation for everything that came next, which is why when people ask me, oh, were you so surprised about Abby and the news about that? I wasn't because when Glennon decided that she was going to come into herself and begin to live as she was meant to live, everything else that has come from that, her writing that has freed all of these people, it was all this process of her learning to know herself and trust herself. So when she said, I'm in love with Abby, I knew that she is a woman who knew deeply what she needed and trusted herself completely. And there is no trust like a trust that you have in a woman who trusts herself. And so it was, all of it was a natural flow from that. So many great quotes today. I love this. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Abby, I'm going to put you up. Hi, babe. 
Hello. We've got Abby and Glennon here. And one thing that I didn't ask you was about your family today, which Mm. in doing research for this interview seems like, I mean, I definitely don't imagine that it's easy, but it seems like you guys are doing a good job. Thank you. There are so many different examples of families out there. What have you guys found to be helpful in, in thinking through how you've built your family today? I think the most helpful thing to me is Craig and Abby's relationship. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that very early on, actually, before I met the children, Craig and I started a relationship via email. And we met and talked through a lot of stuff. And he was super brutally honest at times because it was hard, right? Like their family was changing and he was scared, I think, for his children. So we developed a relationship before I met the children. And when Glennon and and Craig sat the kids down to tell them about their divorce, Craig told the children, even though they were devastated, he said, you know, I love Abby and I want your mom to be happy. And quite frankly, that was probably to this day the biggest gift I've ever been given. Giving these children permission to love me changed everything. And it changed the whole future of our family, being able to blend, being able to coexist and not just coexist, but like thrive. Mm -hmm. You know, we take family vacations and Craig really believes in the mindset of your children's happiness is important and putting your children first, especially ahead of your ego when um, your life might change in certain ways. I'm just so grateful because they've raised children that would open arm accept me. It's it's still to this day maybe the greatest gift ever because I'm cultivating these relationships with these children that feel like they are my biological children, Mm -hmm. that feels like they came from me somehow. And it's because of Craig, it's because of Glennon and the beauty and the way in which they raise these kids. That was beautiful. Mm -hmm. One thing that we didn't talk about that I always ask in any interview is negotiating. I think that it is something that women need to talk about more, how they mm -hmm. help negotiate, how they actually think about negotiation. So, you know, obviously the U.S. women's national team sued U.S. soccer for gender discrimination, and they're still fighting for equal pay. You've talked a lot about how you've thought about pay disparity going into your retirement. Both of you guys have to negotiate in different ways. I mean, I think any public figure is negotiating when you talk about being your untamed self versus your tame self. I think that there is a good deal of negotiating within yourself. Starting with Abby, what advice do you give not just young women, women at any point in their career for finding that strength to negotiate? This is a really good question. You know, I am part of the class action lawsuit that the women have filed against U.S. soccer, which is exciting and also horrible that it's even happening. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why the lawsuit's happening. But one of the most important things for me is that our women's national team serves as some kind of beacon of hope for women. And I I believe deeply that this lawsuit is so much more symbolic than what's going to actually happen with the women getting actual money in their bank accounts, right? Because that's one piece of this puzzle. Women in the world need to see other women in the world fighting against power and winning, fighting against power and trying to structurally change these institutions that were built by men for men. 
so that women have a place. And sometimes you have to just completely demolish the building that was already built for men and build your own. It's like what Ava DuVernay said, like, y'all over there trying to break through the glass ceiling of a house that men built. I'm over here actually just building it myself in my own house. Our women just serve as the opportunity and the possibility of what women in the world can have, can get to. And it takes time. It takes investment in yourself. It takes courage. One thing that I know to be true about our women's national team is that the only way we do it is if we do it together. And that is and has always been the bedrock of strength that our women's team has carried through all of the generations and teams that have passed. And I think that for all women everywhere, seeing other women really fighting this fight and then winning, right? That Megan Rapino in the Rapino pose, I mean, when you see a woman doing what the national team did, being excellent and celebrating that way unapologetically. When I think of Untamed, like that's the vision. One mm. of the many visions I have is that frickin' Megan Rapino just being excellent and then going into that corner and looking up at the crowd and just throwing her arms up just like, hell yes, I'm that good. They were our vision of Untamed Women. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting team. is if you remember what that was like this last summer, and maybe how that felt inside of you, it will give you a nice bit of clue as to where you are in your untaming, not just as a woman, but also as a man. Men need a lot of untaming as well. And if you felt like, oh, look at her, she's showing off, like you wouldn't have said that about a man. You wouldn't have thought that about a man. It's good evidence almost to watch our women's national team play, see them celebrate for themselves and for each other, and see how that feels for you. <laughs> Measure your own taming yeah. Yeah. by it. No, yeah. it's true. And one other thing I, I think it's important to say about negotiation is I feel like I have earned my way into rooms and spaces. And also I have gotten into rooms and spaces partly because of how palatable I am as a white woman. And I think that one of the ways we need to look at negotiation also is how are we using our access to rooms to bring voices that are just as strong and important, if not more strong and important than ours, who aren't being invited into those rooms. Mm. So when I think of negotiation right away, I think of it in terms of like, what am I using the last tour that I did, we made sure that, you know, people were buying tickets to see me, but that there were five other women on the stage who may have not sold tickets. But the amazing thing is when people left the theater, they were like, nobody freaking remembered any words that I said because they're so freaking good, the other women. Like, so I just think that a negotiation goes both ways. Once you get in a door, my friend Cameron always says you hold open the door. Mm. So I'm going to transition to the lightning round. Oh, I get so scared and sweaty. It'll be fine. Okay. The first question oh, is Abby's actually holding my hand. It's okay. for both of you guys. So you, I read, coach soccer. Do you still coach soccer? With uh, not anymore, but I did. I was okay. coaching with Craig and uh, I was coaching our, well, at the time, 11-year-old. Now she's 14. What's the best piece of advice you have for parents on the sideline? Say Shut no words. Up. Yeah, right? <laughs> Say no words. Be quiet. Shut the hell up. Oh, my God. We bring blow pops to the sidelines and just shove them in people's mouth. Like, you want to know how to suck less? Suck more. (laughs) (laughs) I am putting my family on blast because I get embarrassed when, like, my brother-in-law goes to soccer games. I'm like, you're not the coach. People lose their mind. It's always, like, really interesting when people are actually yelling instructions on the field that are wrong, that are incorrect, right, to their children, like, of what to do. And I'm just like, 
No, that's not right. <laughs> Be quiet. Low pop for you. Yes. Low pop for that's you. That's a great strategy. Okay, first job. My first job, waitress. I was hauling Christmas trees for my parents my dad's store. Worst job. Waitress. Hauling Christmas trees for my parents at my dad's store. Um, <laughs> first phone call you make when you get good news. To my wife. Same. What about bad news? Sister. <laughs> to my wife. Yeah, that's nice. What's the last TV show you guys binge watched or streamed? We were obsessed with The Morning Show. Oh, yeah. The Morning Show's good. So effing good. Um, this Is Us is like one of our oh, families. Oh, so, yes. yeah. I can't. Every week. One of our us. friends is a writer. Cheer. 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 Oh, cheer. Get out oh, of my here. We interviewed Monica. Cheer. No. We did. And they all came in here. No. Jerry. I'll show you. Yes. Oh, my God, you guys. Just a mat talk. I, I just need a mat talk every hour and a half. I feel like Jerry for everyone. Okay, last question. What's your shameless plug? Everybody needs to go buy Untamed. Today. Right. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. It's yes, out. same. Go same. buy today. Yes, same with me. Untamed. And also untamed. hire more women. Yes, at, at in general. In, in leadership yeah. positions. And yeah. how about we, we elect women? Yeah, elect some freaking women, go. for God's sakes. Come on. Jesus, stop telling your kids they can be president unless you're going to freaking vote for one. Yeah. All right. Great place to end. Thank you guys all. <laughs> Glennon, Amanda, Abby, this has been awesome. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 